following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we're in Revelation this morning, and uh, I thought what we'd do, we're in Revelation chapter 19. Now last week, we had, do you remember we had a multi-voice reading of the passage? It even had a musical backdrop to it, and there were different people reading different excerpts of the passage, and I thought we'd do a similar thing this morning, but I thought we'd involve you guys, uh, because this passage in Revelation 19, and we're really coming down the home straight now in Revelation, you'll be pleased to know, we're really building towards the big climax, the great crescendo of the whole book. Chapter 19, and we're going to read the first 10 verses, but what I'd like to do is this passage is all built around the word hallelujah. That's the theme of the passage, and that word appears four times periodically in the passage. I would like, if you can follow along on screen, I'll read the passage, but when we get to the word hallelujah, could we all say it? In fact, could we all shout it? You'll notice every time hallelujah is mentioned in here, it's either a shout or it's a cry. It's never just said. So it's hallelujah, okay? So don't be afraid. Just go for it, belt it out. And uh, let's get into it. Do you think we're up for this? All right, good, good. Here we go. Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! This is going to be good. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to Jesus' testimony. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Hmm, Hallelujah. You did very well. Now, I thought we'd uh, maybe start this morning with a little game of Guess the Song. All right, so I've got a little song here. Dave's going to play it. See if you uh, know what song this is. Crank it up there, Dave. Hey, Debbie's got it already. You know the song? Hallelujah. Yeah, who wrote it? Leonard Cohen. Yeah, who covered it? Yes, Jeff Buckley. That's right. I had to look that up. I sound like I already knew that. Yeah, Hallelujah. Very popular song written back in the 80s. I thought that was appropriate because the passage is all on Hallelujah this morning. Now, that's not a Christian song. If any of you need to cover your ears at this point. But it's, uh, it's a good song. And what's interesting about the song is the way that it creates this strange tension between the word hallelujah and the mood of the song. Because hallelujah is supposed to be an upbeat word, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, 
It's a word of celebration. It's positive. It's supposed to be shouted. But listen to the song. It's a lament. It's a sad song. And he talks about singing a cold and a broken hallelujah. Interesting, isn't it? So there's a strange kind of space that that song opens up between this word that's supposed to be used for praise, uh, but then a very somber, very melancholic, very lamenting, sad sort of tune. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying we should get all our theology from Leonard Cohen, but I think that he may have put his finger on something there about how that word can be used about some of the mystery of hallelujah and the different ways in which we can say and speak and sing and shout hallelujah. There are different contexts and sometimes hallelujah can arise from the context of real brokenness. Well, if nothing else, uh, Leonard Cohen managed to drag that word out of a purely religious realm right into the realm of mainstream public life. There's a lot more people that have been singing hallelujah since 1984, I can tell you that. So that word really is the center of this passage, hallelujah. Four times hallelujah is spoken. Now what surprised me in Revelation 19 is that this is the only time in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. Isn't that interesting? I mean, just have a quick look. Just flick through from Matthew 1 and see if I'm right. Some of you are actually doing that. It, it's, not, it's not there. It, only here in the entire New Testament. Now, it's four times in the space of 10 verses in Revelation 19, but nowhere else in the whole of the New Testament. It's used a lot of times in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. And the Hebrew word behind hallelujah is the word halal. It simply means praise or thanks, to give praise. And when halal is combined with the name for God, which is Yahweh, the two words get merged together and you end up with hallelujah. And that's just a stone's throw from our English word hallelujah. So the word hallelujah simply means praise God. Praise be to God. Praise the Lord. And that phrase crops up lots in the Psalms, doesn't it? If you've read much of the Psalms, you see praise the Lord all the time. Maybe not in English the word hallelujah, but praise the Lord. In fact, there's an entire category of Psalms called Hallel Psalms. They're songs of praise. They're often the ones that start with that phrase, praise the Lord, and some of them start with it and end with it. It's like bookends of a psalm. When you see those ones that start and end with praise the Lord, you know you're dealing with a Hallel Psalm, psalms specifically designed and written to, to give praise to God, praise to Yahweh for His goodness, for His kindness, for His amazing deeds that He's done on behalf of His people, uh, for the whole history of how he's journeyed with Israel. Praise the Lord. It's an expression of praise. So you could say that if those Psalms in the Old Testament are the Hallel Psalms, then this Psalm in the New Testament, this passage in Revelation 19, this is like the Hallel Psalm of the New Testament. The only one of its kind. A song of praise. And if you read it like a psalm, you're getting close to reading it the way it was intended to be read. It's a song of praise, and it's quite unique in the whole of the Old Testament, but it's rooted and anchored in these halal psalms of the Old Testament. And these halal psalms that this passage is drawn from, they had a very particular part in Israel's worship life. The halal psalms were used particularly around the time of Passover. Passover is the feast, still is when Jewish families have a meal that celebrates and remembers the Exodus. They remember God's great act 
in the Old Testament, his great saving act of bringing his people under Moses out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom in Canaan. That whole act in the book of Exodus, it's recorded, that is the, the Exodus event. And whenever Passover is celebrated, that's what Jews are looking back to. They're remembering it. They're thanking God for his act of deliverance. And they use the Hillel Psalms. Some are read before dinner and some are read after dinner. And they use these Psalms as a way of remembering the past and a way of turning that back into a fresh expression of praise to God in the present. They're looking back to that, that first exodus. And what is significant about this passage in Revelation 19 is as a Hillel psalm, it is also based around the exodus. Except that the exodus, this psalm, this passage is looking towards, is not the first exodus. It's not the Red Sea exodus. It's the final exodus, the future exodus, the exodus that's yet to come, the day when God brings us out of slavery to sin, slavery to the brokenness of the present age, and into the freedom and the glory of the new creation. That too is going to be like an exodus. It's going to be even greater than the first one, better than the first one. It's going to be Exodus 2.0, and that's what this psalm looks toward. It's an incredible symmetry, isn't it, in the Scriptures? You have these Hillel Psalms in the Old Testament that look back to the first Exodus, and you have this Hillel Psalm in Revelation 19 that looks forward to the new Exodus. Isn't the Bible amazing? Isn't that just beautiful? Uh, an integration of Old and New Testament. God knew what he was doing when he put this stuff together. There really is just one story here, isn't there? And it just weaves its way beautifully from creation right through to new creation. So even though this Psalm is set in the new creation with what God has yet to do in the future, its roots go all the way back to the Exodus, all the way back to what God has done for his people and through the history of Israel. Really, this, this passage spans the whole sweep of the biblical story. Hallelujah is so broad and so wide-ranging, and there is so much to say hallelujah for. So I want to look with you at this, at this passage in a little more depth, and particularly the, the two parts of this Exodus-type event that it's describing. There is a coming out of something and there is a going into something that this passage describes it's got an exodus type shape to it there's a moving away from and there's a moving towards the first part of this chapter first three verses or so talk about what God is going to rescue us from what God is going to bring us out of in the future and it sounds a little bit strange it sounds a little bit derogatory the first hallelujah goes up verse 1 Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. What are they celebrating? What are they saying hallelujah about? They're saying hallelujah about the demise of the prostitute. That doesn't really sound like Christian ethics, does it? Celebrating somebody's destruction. We're celebrating somebody's downfall. We're celebrating terrible things that have happened. What happened to loving your enemy? Well, it's where it's important to recognize that this prostitute is not a particular person. She's not a particular individual. She's not a particular woman. We saw who she was back in Revelation 17 and 18. The prostitute is a symbol for the city of Rome. That's certainly who she would have been interpreted as in John's day by John and by his, his audience is the city of Rome. Rome was like a prostitute. And the way that Rome conducted relationships that were self-serving, 
dehumanizing, objectifying towards others, particularly towards the kings of the earth that, that committed adultery, entered into these unholy alliances with her. That's why Rome's called a prostitute, because she's a picture of immorality. She's a picture of unfaithfulness. She's a picture of walking away from God and pursuing relationships that are completely unlike what he had intended for humanity. And Rome, in John's mind and in the book of Revelation, really becomes a symbol for everything that's wrong with the world. John and his audience were particularly focused on the city of Rome in their day, but as a symbol that really stands for all the evil that we find in the present age, all of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of the injustice, all of the corruption, everything that is not the way it is supposed to be in your life, in my life, and in our world. That's all the prostitute. That's all Rome. That's all what this woman symbolizes. So what we're really saying hallelujah over here, what this multitude is singing hallelujah about is that the day is coming when God is going to condemn evil. That the day is coming when God is going to eradicate evil from the world. He's going to purge this world of all sin and all brokenness, all corruption, all evil, everything that stands against His reign, everything that resists His rule and His great power will be condemned. All brokenness. It's going to be done away with. So it's this declaration that evil in the present is not the final word because the day is coming when God's going to judge evil and he is going to take it away. It may not be in this life, but it is going to be at the end of the age when Christ returns, when God intervenes, when he judges. That's why judgment for Christians is good news. We fear often this word judgment. We worry about judgment. It seems very foreboding. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, judgment, God's judgment is good news for you. It's good news because you know what it represents? God putting things right. God putting things right and restoring things to the way they were always intended to be. If God's judgment was all about who's naughty and nice, yeah, we wouldn't be singing hallelujah, would we? We'd be in trouble. But it's not. God's judgment is about Jesus and God's judgment is about restoring and renewing and reclaiming his good creation and drawing people into relationship with himself. So judgment for us should be good news. It is finally God bringing justice to bear on injustice, bringing peace where there has been violence, bringing reconciliation where there has been enmity, and establishing his kingdom fully and finally upon the earth. It's what judgment is intended towards, and part of that is that there will be no evil, no trace of it in the new creation. That's hopeful. It's a reason for singing hallelujah. Anna and I have a friend who a few years ago injured his back quite severely, and he had to go and have back surgery. Except that the surgery didn't go very well. And the surgeon didn't perform it very well. And the surgery set him back much further than where he was at before he went in for surgery. So he had an incredibly long time of waiting to recover. And that never happened. And so he had to go back and have a second surgery to try and fix up the first surgery that he'd had that didn't work. And his recovery from second surgery has also been really, really slow, much slower than it should have been, far slower than he intended it to be. He has, over the last, I think, couple of years, incrementally been working his way back to more and more hours at work, just by a couple of hours, maybe every couple of weeks. He's finally got up to the point where he can now do 32 hours back at work. But he just told me the other week that it now looks like the bone graft they did in the second surgery hasn't worked, and he's now looking like he'll have to head for a third surgery. He's a young guy, he's got a young family. You can only imagine how debilitating this must be for him. Just not as mobile, not as strong as he wants to be. Unable to really play with his kids, I imagine, as much as he'd want to. Um, the pain level. 
all of these things he's got to contend with, it's just, it just represents for me what is not right with this world and what is not the way it is supposed to be. And I think for people like him, this passage stands as a promise, as an assurance that it's not always going to be that way. That one day God is going to eradicate what is wrong with us. He, he's going to condemn all injury, all sickness. There'll be no more disability. There'll be no more uh, illness. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more tears or crying or pain. Whatever sucks life from our bodies, whatever strucks, sucks strength from us, whatever decays and depletes us, all that God is going to wipe away in the new creation. He's going to condemn whatever seeks to destroy us and to harm our, our physicality in the present. You think of a, a single mum raising young kids on her own, and she's exhausted. She's just physically wrecked, and she loves her kids desperately, but she would do anything for one day where she's not being grabbed and touched and drooled on and spewed on and screamed at, and she's desperately lonely on top of all that. This passage to her is a promise that it's not always going to be that way. That whether or not it gets easier in this life, that what is now will not always be. That one day we're going to have all the best of family without the worst stuff that comes along with it. That what is draining her in the present and what is robbing her of life and what is leading to such chronic loneliness and wearing her down and eroding her spirit, all that is one day going to be condemned. That's what this passage promises. The one day God's going to do away with all of that. And we will only know the best of relationships and the purity of relationships as they were supposed to be. That's the great promise. You think of a guy addicted to pornography and the way that that addiction has just got its claws into his life and the more that he tries to get out of it, the more powerless he feels. That's what addiction does. He lives with despair. He lives in hopelessness. He lives with a sense of self-loathing. It damages his life. It damages his family. It could potentially damage his work life. It certainly damages his relationship with God. He hates himself, but he doesn't know how to stop. And I see in this passage a promise that it won't always be that way. That one day God's going to condemn addiction. God's going to condemn these forces that just seem to overpower us and control us and dehumanize us. And rob us of life. He's going to condemn sin. He's going to condemn evil. He's going to take it all away. See, the hallelujah is not supposed to be a cliche. And it's so frustrating the way that it has just become a shallow, superficial kind of thing we say to make ourselves feel better. You know, when people are struggling and you say, well, just, let's just say hallelujah anyway. You know, it's kind of cheesy grins on our faces. It's like a, one of those Christian bumper stickers or something, you know. It just... It feels hollow a lot of the time, and it shouldn't, because hallelujah is deep and rich with meaning. But it may be that for you, your hallelujah is a cold and broken hallelujah, the kind that Leonard Cohen talks about. And if it is, it's a hallelujah of faith, isn't it? Because it's a hallelujah where you are saying and pledging and believing that the way things are now are not always the way they'll be. That word hallelujah, it contains within itself the promise of a better future. It may not represent your present circumstances. You might have nothing in your life right now you can look around and say hallelujah about at all, or so you feel. But hallelujah holds the promise of the new creation. Hallelujah is about breathing life into the present and breathing something of God's future into the present darkness and speaking that promise that one day we're going to stand with the great multitude. And what is described here will no longer be future, it will be past. It will be done 
Evil will be condemned. Sin will be done away with. And we'll stand face to face with Jesus in pure relationship with him. So hallelujah might be a down payment of that without actually seeing the reality of it now. Hallelujah for you might emerge from brokenness. That's okay. Hallelujah might emerge out of real suffering. You might be walking through a real valley. It doesn't stop you saying hallelujah. It just means you say it in faith. It means you say it in faith that one day, and it may not be this life, but at the end of this age, one day, evil's not going to have the last word. Suffering, pain, sin, struggle, they will not have the last word. They will give way to new creation, to life and victory in the presence of Jesus. You see the richness of hallelujah? See the depth of it? It's really bringing God's glorious future into the present. We take that words on our, on our lips now as a down payment of what is to come. That God's going to do away with everything that stands between us and him on that day. So then, we've looked at what this exodus out of means, that God is going to one day bring us out of slavery, out of captivity to sin and brokenness and evil. But what about what he brings us into? That's the next few verses of this passage. In verses 5 through 8, we get the other side of the Exodus story and what God's going to free us to, to move into and to enjoy and to experience. And the scene changes here. You look at verse 5, and particularly verse 7 and 8. The scene all changes, and now suddenly it's a wedding. We all like a good wedding, don't we? This is a great wedding. At the end of, toward the end of the book of Revelation, the great wedding of the Lamb, the great wedding of Christ. And it's got a groom, that's Jesus, still pictured as the Lamb. And it's got a bride. And the bride is us. The bride is those people who are united to Jesus. Those people who follow Jesus. It's the church. Not one particular church. Not church little C, but church big C. The whole universal gathering of people who have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Down through history, across the world, every nation, tribe and tongue. That's the great multitude. That's the bride of Christ. And this is a picture of one day we are collectively, as a bride, going to be presented to Christ as our groom and we will enjoy pure relationship with him on through eternity. Relationship not corrupted and contaminated by sin in the present, but relationship with him as it was always intended to be. This picture of the bride in verse 7 and 8, it's supposed to be a stark contrast with the prostitute. Do you notice that both women appear in this chapter? The prostitute earlier on, and now the bride in verse 7 and 8. The whole point is that we're supposed to see this huge contrast between the two. The prostitute, she's a picture of immorality. She's a picture of sin, selfishness, unfaithfulness. But the bride is a picture of purity. The bride of Christ. It's this picture of real relationship as it was intended to be. It's a picture of what we've talked about several times in this series as lamb power. The kind of love that is demonstrated in giving oneself for the other. Laying down my interests, laying down my rights, laying down my preferences, giving myself to the other. That's lamb power. The kind of power demonstrated in self-giving love. And the whole marriage here is built on that. From Christ to the bride, from the bride to Christ. It's a relationship of lamb power. It's a relationship of real love and real depth. Now there's one thing about these two women that seems to look the same. And it's what they're wearing. They both seem to have expensive tastes. The prostitute, back in chapter 17, she's dressed in purple and scarlet, really high-end expensive fabrics. 
And now this, this bride of Christ, she's also dressed in fine linen, we find out. So very nice, expensive fabrics. It seems in, in one sense like these two women both have very nice, fine, expensive garments. And that's true. But there's a key difference. The difference is who gives the bride her wedding dress. You look at that verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Now we're not told directly, but I think we can assume it's God that gives the bride her wedding dress. She doesn't just wear whatever she wants to. She doesn't just take her own clothes. God himself gives the bride her wedding dress. That passive voice in that verse is very important. We call it in Revelation the divine passive. It's a passive that suggests the action is being done by God. God is the agent he is acting upon. He is giving the bride her wedding dress. Now, guys, if there's any fiancé, guys who are engaged here, I wouldn't suggest this. Wouldn't suggest that you go out and buy your fiance her wedding dress, go and choose it for her. It's not going to make for a happy wedding day. Not at all. But in this occasion here, it's perfectly fitting, perfectly appropriate, isn't it? That God the Father gives the bride, his church, her wedding gown to wear. That even though in one sense the church prepares herself and the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the church, in another important sense, God gives the church her righteousness. God prepares the church. God is the one that clothes us. All this imagery goes right back to the book of Isaiah. There's a lovely verse in here, Isaiah 61. Just, just flick back there for a second. The whole chapter actually is fantastic. Isaiah 61 about the restoration of Israel and the Lord's favor turning towards his people again. In verse 10 there, you'll see where, where, where Revelation 19 picks up all this imagery from. In verse 10 of Isaiah 61, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see all of that imagery? It's just carried right through into Revelation. That's the basis of it. A couple of chapters later, Isaiah is going to say that on our own before God, we're dressed in filthy rags. Our own righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's just coming a couple of chapters later. In other words, you and I, just in ourselves, in our own efforts, we're just dressed in filthy rags. We're just wearing rags. We're broken people. We're sinful people. We're so unbelievably full of selfishness, aren't we? I know I am. That, that, that sin of just self-absorption runs through our hearts so deeply like a cancer. We are so self-obsessed. We are so self-promoting. We are so self-focused. We do it in all kinds of ways, but we are just so sinful. We're dressed in rags. That's the picture. And in the beauty of the biblical story, what we find is that Jesus has come and he's worn our rags. He's taken upon himself all of our sin, all of our filth, all of our rubbish, all of our shame, all the stuff that you're carrying, all the stuff that leads to your brokenness, things we've done and the things we are that are so far from who God wants us to be. Jesus has absorbed that. He's borne it in his own body on the cross. He's taken it to the grave. And now in response to that, God comes to us with this garment of salvation. You picture him like the father of the prodigal son saying, bring me the best robe. I want you to put this on now. He comes to us with a robe of righteousness and he says, I want you to try this on. I want to wrap this around you. And he just clothes us now in his incredible grace. He just wraps around you his love, wraps around you his forgiveness, clothes you in his acquittal, vindication, 
innocence, freedom, wraps around you as mercy. If you are a Christian, if you're united to Jesus, right now you're wearing that garment of salvation. Whatever you're wearing to church, you're actually wearing the garment of salvation. And you know when God sees you, that's what he sees. He sees that garment of salvation. It covers all your shame, covers all your sin, covers all your failure, covers everything that you just keep on doing, which is crazy. And that garment of salvation is there. And it doesn't come off. It doesn't get shed just because we blow it and stuff up and screw up. God sees you and he sees that robe of righteousness. That's the basis on which he relates to you now. He sees that robe of righteousness. He just moves towards you in love, kindness and mercy because he has clothed you as one of his precious sons and daughters. That robe of righteousness, his own righteousness, righteousness of his son Jesus is wrapped around us now. Got to remember that, don't we? On our worst days in particular, when you feel a billion miles from God and you feel like God has probably given up on you, you've got to remember you are clothed in that garment of salvation and you are clothed in that robe of righteousness. Even when you're down on life, down on yourself, down on everyone else, down on God, you're still clothed in the robe of righteousness. Just soak that up. It's good stuff. You know, one day that robe of righteousness is going to become a wedding gown. That's where the story goes, you see. That's how you get from Isaiah 61 to Revelation 19. The robe of righteousness becomes a wedding gown. And one day, we will walk down the aisle. Now, this is a little bit difficult for guys to picture, but just bear with me. I mean, guys, there's enough masculine imagery in the scriptures that women have to put up with, right? So we're just going to have to deal with this one for a minute. But we will one day be a bride. And it's telling, isn't it, that we will collectively be a bride? Not a whole lot of little brides. But we will together be a bride. It speaks to our community, doesn't it? it speaks to our, the importance of one another. Together one day, and with all of God's people, we're going to be a bride, and we will walk up that aisle towards Jesus. One of the things I love doing at weddings is, you know when the bride's coming up the aisle, and everybody's looking at the bride, you know how you sneak a little peek at the groom in those times, and you just catch his face? And it's beaming, isn't it? Sometimes it's sweating, but it's beaming. He's happy. He's full of joy, just delight at this picture of his bride walking towards him. Just picture Jesus like that. As we walk down the aisle one day, Jesus is standing at the top of the aisle just beaming because he loves you. He loves us. And he's just so full of delight. All the struggles of this life are over. All the pain has been done away with. It's all been condemned and now we've just got to walk down that aisle and we will be with Jesus at last. It's a beautiful picture. It's that look on Jesus' face on that day. That's enough to carry you through some difficult times in the present, isn't it? Even though the engagement period's quite rough, one day there's going to be a wedding. It's a bumpy engagement, but there's a wedding day coming. Don't forget that. There's a wonderful wedding day coming. Our groom is waiting for us. He so loves us. He so delights in us. He so looks with favor on us. And that should stir us in the present to say hallelujah, a joyful hallelujah, because the wedding day is coming. And again, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, we know that day is on its way. And then we will be united with Jesus at last. Just like Teo described it. That, I can't remember how he said it, but the beautiful oneness of relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the 
beauty of the new creation, not just inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth, but oneness with God. Participation in the life and the love of Father, Son, and Spirit. Could there be anything greater to pull our hearts forward? When we say hallelujah, it's an expectant hallelujah, isn't it? That that's going to happen. It's a hopeful hallelujah. It's a hallelujah of anticipation. And not a vague hope or a vague one, the certainty of knowing there's a wedding day coming. And it pulls us through the engagement in the present. Well, there's one more thing that uh, in this passage I think we've got reason to say hallelujah for. And it's right at the end. I still with this briefly, but there's a strange little scene at the end that I think is worth just talking about. John, gets, John is so overwhelmed by all this that in verse 10, he makes the mistake of falling down before the angel and worshiping the angel. We don't know why he does this. It's, 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 it's not a good thing to do. It's a serious error. And when you think about it, John's actually pretty humble even in telling us about it. I wouldn't have wanted to include that in my book personally. But he tells us that this is what happened. And he tells us that the angel responded to him by saying, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to Jesus' testimony. Worship God. Now look at this sentence. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's a really important sentence for understanding all of Revelation. In fact, all of biblical prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the message about Jesus. It's the witness of who Jesus is. Savior, Lord, Christ, Messiah, Redeemer, the center of God's whole story. That's the testimony about Jesus. Witnessing to his reality and the reality of his lordship. The spirit of prophecy is what the Spirit of God gives to the prophets of the Bible to speak to the people of God. The Spirit of prophecy is what the Holy Spirit places inside the prophetic spirit to empower and enable the prophets to speak forth. Now, you put those two phrases together, it's dynamite. What this means is that the Spirit of prophecy, what the Spirit has centrally given the prophets of the Bible to communicate is the Lordship of Jesus, is the testimony about Jesus. The whole ministry of prophecy, Old Testament and New, is all about Jesus. It's about pointing to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean all the prophets in the Old Testament talked about Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't always talk directly. They didn't talk directly about him at all. But in the whole sweep of the story, even their ministry was part of God's overall purpose of pointing forward towards Jesus pointing people towards what was to come. Prophecy in the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. Prophecy in the New Testament looks back to Jesus. The whole thing centers around Jesus. This is why First Peter says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find the time and circumstance to which the Spirit in them was pointing when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of things that have now been told to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Peter's saying the prophets of the Old Testament, they were talking about Jesus without even realizing it. They were pointing people towards Jesus without even knowing it. Prophecy from beginning to end is all about Jesus. Now that's important because we always think the prophecy is about the future. So we come to a book like Revelation and we immediately go, oh, it's prophecy. That must be about the future. Prophecy is not about the future. It's about Jesus. Prophecy is all about pointing people to Jesus. Now, that might mean at some times that the prophets were given something to disclose about events yet to come. Like this chapter. We see a picture of the future judgment of God. We see a picture of the future new creation. But the point is not to give us a prediction of end times events. The point is to point us to Jesus. 
Because the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus all the time. Prophecy is not about the future. It's about Jesus. It's not about foretelling events. It's about forthtelling the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind when you're reading books like Revelation, like Daniel, like Ezekiel, like every other piece of prophecy in the Bible. Keep that little sentence in mind. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony about Jesus. The testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that really rounds out the whole picture, doesn't it? Because this chapter just spans the whole sweep of the biblical story from the first exodus right through to the final exodus. And now we discover that in the center of it all is Jesus. Right in the center of the story, making sense of the whole thing, pulling the whole picture together. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one that it all hangs around. He is the one through whom God's purposes for humanity and creation are now coming to fulfillment. It's all about Jesus. I would say that is a third reason to say hallelujah in this passage, right? It's, Jesus, it's the simple hallelujah of just looking at Jesus and going, wow. He, just, he is the, the touchstone of the whole story. The death and resurrection of Jesus makes sense of everything else. Everything else has to be read in view of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement of Jesus. He's in the middle of the whole story. So again, we say hallelujah. Well, I don't know what you're going through in your life this morning and what your circumstances are, but I believe that in this chapter and in these 10 verses, there is a type of hallelujah that is appropriate for you. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're up against, if things are going well or if things are going badly, there is a hallelujah that we can express, that we can turn back into praise to God. It may be this morning that yours is the broken hallelujah. It may be that life's really hard, you're going through real pain. But it doesn't need to stop you saying hallelujah. Yours can be the cold and the broken hallelujah. But unlike Leonard Cohen's hallelujah, it's not an empty one. It's a hallelujah full of promise. It's a hallelujah of faith that this day will one day end and darkness will give way to light. It's a faithful, hopeful hallelujah. And maybe for you this morning, it is a joyful hallelujah. It's the hallelujah of just knowing and believing and being reminded that you are clothed in the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness, just knowing that afresh, allowing God to speak it to you afresh. It just wells up in you. Maybe it is natural for you to say hallelujah this morning. Good, say it and sing it and mean it. And maybe it is the simple hallelujah of just looking at Jesus and saying, praise God for Jesus, for sending his son, for taking our humanity into himself and redeeming it and renewing it and transforming it. Thank God for Jesus. That should give rise to a beautiful hallelujah as well, shouldn't it? What else can we say in response to all God has done for us, all God is doing for us, and all that he has yet to do for us, then say, hallelujah, praise God. We're going to respond in singing some songs of praise, some songs of hallelujah in a moment. We'll pray together first before we do that. Let's pray. God, we do just stand amazed at all you've done. Right from the exodus of bringing your people out of slavery, through the life of Israel, through the ministry and the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus on through our present age and into the future, this glorious future. We see just glimpses of it, but God, it just tugs our hearts forward. And, and you've given us, God, this word to say. And it's not just a word, it's an expression of praise, but you've placed it there, God, because it is the fitting 
and the appropriate response of your people to who you are. And God, this morning we join with your people down through the centuries. Lord, we think of Jewish families that through the ages have celebrated Passover, taking this word on their lips of hallelujah because of your mighty deeds. We think of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, taking the Passover meal with his disciples, singing the Hallel Psalms and saying hallelujah to you, even as he was about to go and purchase our redemption. And now, Jesus, you've given us this song in Revelation 19 to sing, a New Testament song, and it points us forward, it points us on into what you are yet to do. It's a hallelujah of hope. It's a hallelujah of anticipation. So, God, may it be so for us this morning. Whatever condition our hearts are in, we lift them to you now, and we say and we sing hallelujah, and we just simply say praise you, Lord. Thank you, God, for all that you are, for all that you've done. There's nothing left for us to do but to praise you. So we choose to do that now in the name of Christ. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.